recording. Yeah, we're recording. But are they both still on serve? Yes, they're both still on serve and we're recording. Yes, we are. Guys, if you're listening, the finals of the men's <laughs> tournament at the Australian Open is still going on. So this might be the most distracting podcast we've ever recorded. Not only the final's still going on, but we are into it's in the closest possible stage. It's the fifth set of a Grand Slam final. It's Yannick Sinner against Daniel Medvedev. Anastasia cannot contain the tension. Um, yeah, this is a new experience. This is probably going to be a bit of a messy episode because we're both going to be distracted by the match. I'm currently recording this on my phone in the middle of a hotel in Scotland. And uh, yeah, this could be utter chaos. Uh, yeah, at the minute, just to jump straight in on here, we're kind of... We're kind of in a weird state of emotional conflict about this match. So for you guys who might be newer to this, uh, yeah, we've got Yannick Sinner who's trying to win his first Grand Slam and Daniel Medvedev who's trying to win his second but his first Australian Open having been heartbroken two years ago against Rafael Nadal when he lost from being two sets up. And he's in danger of the same thing happening again with Yannick Sinner. The most improbable way ever it's you know i i wasn't able to stay up and start the match because that would be 3 4 a.m <clears throat> my time um so i thought you know sinner's been playing great i'm gonna go to sleep and wake up to yannick sinner winning his first grand slam and i'll rewatch the match and it'll be all great and i woke up to him being two sets to love down and have now watched him claw back up <laughs> And we're now in the fifth set. And the conflict, as Nick has said, is if Medvedev loses this after leading for two sets, it will be devastating because this is the second time it's happened to him. And I mean, I don't know how I would take it, but it would be really devastating, especially also based on how this tournament has gone for him. And we, you know, we can sort of jump in and like maybe work our way backwards, but Daniil has had one of the just toughest, longest runs to the final of the Australian Open. He has played all his matches, only all but one of his matches were not straight sets. You know, he's played four set matches, he's played five set matches. One of them was a straight set match. Um, But he's had the most hours on court. He was almost out. I think it was, was it the third round? Um, he almost didn't make it through the, through the third round. So it's been really tough going for him. And, um, yeah, this, this, I cannot explain how devastating this would be if he did lose, but we're going to keep watching and we'll update you if something happens in the middle of the podcast as we record. They may well be squawking and screaming from either one of us for whatever reason <laughs> during this um it's going to be a, a lot of happiness and crying because i have to say you know Daniel Medvedev is a character but he's a very sort of smart and insightful player and we've got some really great gems from him from this Australian Open and i will be sad for him if if he doesn't make it through even though i will be extremely happy for Yannick Sinner yeah i am um in the same position of I want Sinner to get the breakthrough. I don't want Medvedev to get heartbroken again. Uh, uh, And I've kind of almost moved to the point where I I started the match rooting for Sinner, um, kind of just sort of 55-45 Sinner, and it's kind of switched to Medvedev. But then I didn't want Sinner to lose in straight sets because I didn't want him to get knocked back. So now I'm kind of in this happy period of like, Sinner's proved he can win a Grand Slam regardless of this because he's played pretty, he's, he's done really, really well to come back. Um, and obviously, you know, Medvedev did something similar against Nadal at the US Open in 2019. Uh, but yeah, I, like, I think for me, I think the who's going to be more gutted about losing? Yeah. It's Medvedev uh, right now. Especially, as you say, like the way he's worked through this tournament, like he's been two points away from losing a match three times this tournament. Um, and actually, if he wins, looking by the, the match clock, if he wins this, I mean, he'd have to win, he'd have to completely dominate the next four games and win in 10 minutes to avoid this. Um, he, 
will be he will spend the most hours on court to win a Grand Slam title, which will break a record set by Carlos Alcaraz at the US Open in 22. So a lot, a lot on the line here. But while the match is still going on, let's work our way back to the beginning when, you know, we had all the players on, at, on the grounds and we were in round one and everything was happy and sunshiny. And give you our thoughts on the Australian Open, how this tournament has gone and what what matches moved us, what players moved us and talk about um, the winners if we get them um, all <laughs> before the end of this this recording. But I mean, we do have one of them already, to be fair. <laughs> we do. We do. And we can always talk about that one and then update you later. <laughs> um, but yeah, so general thoughts on, on the Australian Open. I mean, obviously, we're not there. So we can't sort of give, you know, on the ground coverage. But the Australian Open has just looked like a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, it's called the Happy Slam. That's how they market themselves uh, for a reason. I think it does look like a great day out if you go. Obviously, they, you could sit and watch the match on the big screen in Garden Square. There's lots of different things to do. It's kind of, uh, they've kind of marked it as kind of like a grand day out if you go. Um, and there's, especially during the first week, there's always stuff happening, singles, doubles, uh, whatever. So, to go must yeah. be fantastic. Um, obviously, that's a bit of a pipe dream for both of us. Um, but uh, I, I, I think from sort of trying to watch on TV in the time zones we're in has been a bit of a struggle. But I have, it, I, I've been, I do enjoy waking up to yeah. tennis. Uh, it has to be said. There's a nice feeling of turning on the, having having that on the background whilst I'm getting ready for the rest of my day, um, and generally. Uh, there have been some some pretty good matches yeah, to follow. It's a little tougher where I am because during the first week, you could probably get matches on starting at around 6.30 p.m. So you were more sort of ending your day with tennis. Um, and then depending on how late the night matches went or, you know, for example, this match that's still going on um, in the early hours of the morning here, um, most of the tennis was happening while I was asleep. So what happened was I was trying to stay up as late as possible to watch the tennis. And, you know, you could do that for about a week. And then after that, my body just said, no more. <laughs> you must watch replays from now on. Mm. So definitely watching the Australian Open has been tough. But I think also it's made me super sympathetic for Australians in general who try and follow tennis because we're dealing with what they have to deal with for most of the year. Yeah. I mean, it's not so bad for them when it gets to the US hardcore season. Um, although having said that, you know, it's kind of similar. It'd probably be similar for like to me with the Australian Open in the UK, like the night session matches at the US would start at midday their time. So they can wake up to the day session um, and then they'll probably have to work through the night session, which is, you know, what I have to do for Australia. Um, so, uh, but like for me, like what you're describing, that's my experience of the US yeah. Open. Like US Open, I can get all the day session and then midnight comes round. that's when the night session starts and then I have to decide how much sleep I'm going to sacrifice which is why I missed the legendary Alcaraz Sinner match from a couple of years ago, because uh, I basically, again, similar to you, ran out of juice from being able to stay up um, by that point, which is ironic because I ended up sleeping in and woke up probably just as the match point was happening in that match. So I probably could have seen the very end of it, uh, but had no idea it was gone because my brain was still doing the Windows yeah. dial-up noise. <laughs> You're still rebo re rebooting the system. Um, but yeah, so again, you know, the grounds have looked great from all the videos I've seen. Um, so it definitely must be a very great experience to to be there Oof. in person. Um, and hopefully, you know, one day we can both be 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 in Australia. That would be really, really cool to to visit in person at some point. But um, moving on to the tennis, I... I mean, for the first slam of the year, and I don't know about you, I just don't remember there being this much stuff going on in the first week of a Grand Slam, especially the Australian Open. Um, 
I mean, I'll let you talk a little bit about um, the women's side where, you know, just it, it was story after story. I do think on the ATP side, things kind of went the way you thought they would. Um, I think some really standout players, you know, Adrian Manarino had his moment um, until Djokovic kind of stopped him in what was almost a triple bagel, which have, would have just been in, insane. Um, Arthur Kazoo, who's the young French, I think, is he a teen? I, I'm not sure if he's teen or early 20s, but he's a young Frenchman who came in as um, a wild card. And he took out Holgaruna in the second round and, and went on, on a really good run. Um, definitely showing some Alcaraz style, you know, fun times on court, which I think a lot of people loved. So it'd be nice. It'll be nice to follow him, um, through, through the season. But for you, I think the WTA just, you know, created a news story after news story every day. Uh, maybe every other day. Um, because. Every other day, because it was very much a draw of two halves where the half with Arena Sabalenka and Coco Goffin kind of proceeded as expected. Couple of details, you know, didn't quite go how I thought, but like they were player, but like the players I was predicting to do well, um, you know, it was kind of a, a half chance for them anyway. Um, to cut myself off a mid flow, Yannickson has just broken for 4 2. Um, so in the fifth, so we may be, this match yeah. may be over soon. Um, the, uh, but going back to this, the other half of the draw was utter chaos because all the names that you were expecting to get to the second week didn't. That's Iga Sviantek fell just short. Elena Rabakina fell dramatically short and Jessica Pagula didn't really get going. Um, which opened it up for pretty much anyone. There were, I, it was a massive opportunity for a couple of like players who'd been around for a little while, like Alina Svitolina and Victoria Azarenka, but then they fell in the fourth round. Uh, so yeah, that, that was the story of the players you were expected to deliver weren't, and there were these other players who were kind of, I think all of them were kind of players that you could see coming to a certain extent. They were definitely working it and pulling themselves up. Um, They'd been getting results to suggest they were um, uh, they were going to impress, uh, but the way they've done it and the fact it all happened at the same time against top players was what the surprise was. Yeah, it definitely. I think you're you're right. It was every other day, and I think it was on the even days. So I and I think it was starting with day five. Like day five of the Australian Open was just you know you could not turn on a match without it being some sort of upset or, or epic or something. And then it just kept being, so it was like day five and then day seven and then day nine. Day five had the two best women's matches of the tournament on within sort of hours of each other, because you had Iga Sviantek coming from four, one down in the deciding set against Danielle Collins yeah. to win that match um, unexpectedly, but that was quite some comeback. Uh, even I'd written her off at that point. Um, and uh, you had Elena Rabakina lose in a deciding set tiebreak to Anna Blinkova in what was, it is officially a record longest deciding set tiebreak in a Grand Slam. Yeah. If not ever, where Blinkova edged it 22-20 and both of them had multiple match points. Yeah, that was, that was quite the epic. I just... Also, <clears throat> you know, there are, there are lead up tournaments like we talked about before um, going into the Australian Open. That was uh, our last podcast. And, you know, Elena Rabakina had just beaten Arena Sabalenka. Was it six love, six one? At, in, uh, it was pretty yeah, comprehensive, it was yeah. Like that. And then just to see the complete turnaround, but at the same time she was fighting till the end because that tie break was, I mean, that's, you know, history making that's going to go down in history as, as one of the longest and just, I mean, just craziest tie breaks and to have Anna Blinkova come out of it. Um, and then do, do, um, I think she went, she went two more rounds after that. If, if I'm, if I'm correct, but she no, she only went one more round. round. Um, but for you, 
it seemed like there were a lot of new people coming up on the WTA side, but who weren't completely, maybe not completely unexpected, but for you, all the players that had upsets and stuff, what do you think, who was the most impressive to you? Because we we almost had a Raducanu, as they call it, <laughs> someone coming from qualifiers. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, and actually, that's the player I think is the one who kind of encapsulates sort of everything. That was Diana Yastremska, who is currently ranked 93 in the world. She will move back into the world's top 30. She's been ranked as high as 21 in her career. Um, qualified um, for the tournament. I think she's 21, uh, 21, 22 uh, from Ukraine um, and made the semifinals. And it was really weird because I was like, okay, surely she's going to lose to this player now. Okay, surely she's going to lose to this player now. Like, I thought she was going to lose to Azarenka. She didn't. I thought she'd lose to Noshkova in the quarters. She didn't. Um, And in the end, um, she ended up losing a pretty decently contested two-set battle with um, Zhang Chinwen in the semis. Uh, But yeah, she's a big hitter from Ukraine, um, can peak at interesting times. And yeah, yeah. for me, she's the player that kind of encapsulates everything of, you know, in retrospect, look at it, you know, she qualified for Brisbane and then qualified for Australia. Like she'd got a few wins under her belt. She had a little bit of momentum, but again, the quality of opponents that she was beating to then transform to that to putting together a run to the semis in the way that she did. Uh, yeah, was great. So for me, Diana Stremska is that player that was like, Oh, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. And that kind of brings me to the semis of of the Australian Open because you know, that's kind of where you start you know, looking at oh my goodness, who's going to win this? And on the men's side, we got the semifinals that I think everyone once the draw came out was like we want to see this and it was Sinner versus Djokovic. The second semis was a little bit of a, of an upset, if you can call it that, even though Zverev is in the top 10. So I wasn't looking at it as an upset. I was just... And has a couple of decent wins over Alcaraz exactly, in his career. Exactly. As so well. I saw it more as surprising because I didn't think he was bringing that level to Australia. But looking back on it again, based on the United Cup and seeing Germany come out and win that basically off of his back and also um, uh, uh, Sigmund who played uh, mixed doubles with him. Yeah. Lara Sigmund. Yeah. You know, so he, he had just played so much and then coming into the Australian open, his form wasn't always there. I think he almost lost to Cam Norrie, which is another player who I think this tournament really stepped up his game and um, played some really great matches. He mm. beat Casper Ruud, um, but then lost to Zverev, which was a very tight loss. Like it could have gone either way. And the Zverev that showed up to play Carlos Alcaraz was out of this world. I mean, it was clinical like he was serving as they say from a tree (laughs) um you know him being so tall and so he makes it to the semifinals of of the Australian Open and in what can only be called a choke to say which is weird watching this match right now (laughs) um you know Zverev lost that match um from two sets to love up and if you're paying attention to the news at all, you know, uh, Zverev has his personal issues um, happening in Germany. So that kind of seeped in to the Australian Open vibe as he kept going through the draw. Um, so it was very interesting to watch his story where you have a player here who's playing phenomenal tennis, but he also has these sort of personal issues going on. It was very interesting watching how the tournament dealt with it, the media dealt with it, and then also, you know, the ATP, the governing body, because I feel like these are things you can't, you know, avoid as a fan. Um, they're just, it is what what's happening. So I didn't, I didn't want to gloss over that without mentioning it, but um, he did lose in the semis to Medvedev who, who, 
true to form so far in the tournament was was just battling his way through and is now into the finals um and is and he's two points two away points from losing losing 30 love up on his on potentially his final yeah, service so game. I'll I'll keep I'll keep talking, but <laughs> we'll bring we'll we'll bring breaking <laughs> news as it happens on this podcast. Um, but oh, if only we were live. <laughs> oh, if only we were live. Um, and that just takes us to Sinner and Djokovic, where I think coming into this match, and maybe I was in the minority, but I was pretty sure that Sinner was going to win, not based on Djokovic's form um, coming into the Australian Open, but based on his wins from last year. Because I think what I've noticed in general, um, as someone who's a fan looking from the outside in, is that Djokovic has had this sort of um, aura around him of the greatest player ever to play tennis ever. And that had an effect on other players. But as Carlos Alcaraz came through and started beating Djokovic and then beat him at what is considered his other home, Wimbledon, um, in the finals there, I think that just kind of gave other players a little bit of like, well, what if I could do this too? Um, and Sinner last year at the end of the year at Turin and then at the Davis Cup, I think he gave himself the self-belief that, you know, I've been working at this and I can do it. So I think these little sort of chips in in Djokovic's sort of armor and gloss have created room for players to come in because Speaking of Novak Djokovic and his run um, to the to the semifinals, it was not easy. It was one of the sort of most, not most rocky, but it was definitely a rocky run um, to the end. His first match, which was against um, a young player, uh, Dino Prismic, who was a qualifier um, into the Australian Open, was so crazy. I mean, it, he 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 won it in four sets, but Dino put in a pretty good fight. And then that was followed by Poprin, who he also won that in, in four. But you could start seeing the little sort of chips in the armor. Um, so coming into this, I thought Sinner had this, and he did. He beat Djokovic in straight se- straight sets? No. Was it straight? No, it was in four. No, he he, he beat four. Djokovic in four. I I woke, that was another match I woke up to, and Sinner was up six one six two. Same, <laughs> same. I woke up and I was I woke up in the middle of the t- just as the tiebreak was starting in the third set. Um, I'm assuming you've just seen what happened. Oh man. Yannick Sinner is the Australian Open champion. We've just seen it live. Well, actually, I haven't seen it live because my internet dropped on match point. No, come on. (laughs) (laughs) No, I have not seen the match point. I've literally just turned it back on to see Sinner walking back to his chair. But uh, no, the internet stopped working. Him like hug his team. Oh, this kid. So good. (laughs) Yannick. Sinner yeah. is a Grand Slam champion. And, you know, one of the reasons why I was kind of taught about this match and sort of like feeling like not going all in on Medvedev was I felt like Sinner kind of earned yeah. it having beaten yeah. Djokovic, who yeah. hasn't, you know, he'd been to 10, he, he'd, Djokovic was 10 and 0, like he'd never lost an Australian Open semi final. He was, he hadn't lost in Australia for five years. Um, so, yeah, it was, to take down Djokovic at the Australian Open is almost as impressive as taking down Rafa at the French. Um, if you know anything about tennis, you will know that that is incredibly hard yeah. to do. Uh, and so for me, it was like, if you beat Djokovic and don't win the Australian Open, that is just you know, you've, you've almost done half the job. Like, you've got to be gutted because you've done half the job. A bit like losing a Grand Slam final from two sets to love up, which, yeah, Medvedev, he really refused to lose this tournament, um, including against Zverev. And 
uh, he just didn't have enough in the tank to keep up the tennis that he was playing in the first couple of sets because obviously he missed the first couple of sets but Medvedev was playing much more aggressively than he usually does for the first set yeah, and a half and he probably had to keep up that level but he's he's been on court so much this period it's um yeah it, it is a shame it is so sad to see I almost can't look at his side of the of the court right now like please don't show Medvedev please don't show him um please, please don't, don't make us sad. sad but it, and that's the that's uh, it's kind of the joy of tennis and also the sadness of tennis is that um I am so unbelievably happy for Sinner oh look at him drop to the ground so for me I think Sinner has always just been you know uh, he's a very quiet player. He's not, you know, Carlos Alcaraz, you know, showtime. Because <laughs> that's just what Carlos is. Carlos is like an yeah. entertainer and he defaults to that a lot. Sinner has been very quiet. And I think he got a lot of criticism for it being like, this is supposed to be the next guy, but he's not really winning. And, you know, but he went through this whole slow and steady wins the race. And he always talked about his process and learning from matches and things like that. And to finally see it all come to fruition at the end of last season, you know, everyone calls it post puke sinner, um, which happened, which happened <laughs> in Beijing. Um, he was having um, stomach issues, yep. I guess, in the beginning of the, the tournament. And he threw up into a bin that was near the court. And literally ever since that match, he has been a different human being. You know, there's no other way to explain it. But he's won the majority of his matches since then. <laughs> um, and it's been kind of great to see, but it's not come out of nowhere, as they say. I think you've seen his process over the last few years, slowly and slowly. And I think most people only really saw what he was capable of when he played Alcaraz, because for some reason, them playing each other just brought out the best tennis. Um, but finally, you're seeing it in these big stages. And I'm super happy that he's finally... Um, cross the line. And, you know, I think a bigger conversation to have, which not in this podcast, but maybe when we go into, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, this different generations of tennis players, it's sad to see what was the next gen, you know, Tsitsipas, Zverev, Medvedev, they only have one Grand Slam between them. And now you have the next next gen, Carlos Alcaraz, Yannick Sinner, Holgerun, have three between them. And they seem to be accelerating way past the next gen. Um, it's 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 a great time in tennis. It's really, it's really a fascinating time um on both sides of the tour. And while you know we watch the the ceremony and all that, why don't we talk about what happened in the finals of the the women's? which was against Arena Sabalenka, who we haven't really talked about her run to the finals, yeah. but I think you should. And then uh, Quinn Wen-Jen, who made it to the finals. Well, I mentioned, I mentioned um, Zhang Chen-Wen. I don't know how, I think that's how her name is pronounced, just based on listening to Chinese fans oh, at Wimbledon. Went to watch her match against Katarina Siniakova. Yeah, so Chinese names last ah, name is first yes. uh so yeah and i don't and i need to listen to the pronunciation but i'm not entirely sure it's actually a sound although having said that the chinese fans who know english do like the fact that her, she is referred to as queen wen um because who wouldn't love that nickname uh and yeah um i was very impressed i'll start with Zhang since we're talking about her now and i've mentioned her already beating yastramska in the semis I was very impressed because after Sviantec and Rabakina and Pagula and a few other seeds went out in the top half of the draw, by round, I think it was literally, yeah, no, after Rabakina went out, Zhang was the highest seed left in her quarter. When Sviantec went out, Zhang was the highest seed left in that half of the draw. So... I've seen other players in the past kind of wilt under that pressure of, oh, heck, I'm the yeah. favourite now. 
and she didn't. Um, she had a bit of a wobble against uh, Wang Yifun in round three, needs to go to a deciding tie break. Um, but uh, yeah, Zheng, after that, didn't look like she was going to be threatened like that much. I mean, she, she had a bit of a slow side against Karen Skye in the quarters. Uh, but generally, yeah, just was j just made a sort of a favourites progress into the final. The problem was, was that when she went to play Arena Sabalenka in the final, who was an even heavier favourite, not just because there's a defending champion, but she had crunched her way through that draw. Um, that like she had stomped on every single opponent. She double bageled Lacey Serenko in round three. She wasn't dropping more than five games a match uh, until she played Coco. Uh, Coco was a different story uh, because that semi-final was actually super yeah. close that they played. Um, and I wanted to get C Coco in there because... That first set could have gone either way. They were both up in that set at different points. Coco could have won that set, and then she didn't. Second set was super tight all the way through, and then Sabalenka got the break and finished it off. But there is a universe where if some things hadn't quite gone Arena's way, we could be talking about Coco Goff as the Australian Open yeah. champion. But she didn't because Australia's Sabalenka's home turf only in the last two years, only Elena Rabakin has been able to get sets off her. So, uh, really, I don't. I, maybe it's an exaggeration, but in the country of Australia, Rabakin is the only person <laughs> yeah. who's pushed her. Um, like the entire country, she seems to love it there, and she showed that against Zhang. She was just a level above what Zhang can produce right now, uh, and. It just would never seemed in doubt that Arena Sabalenka would win her second Australian Open um, and kind of say, hey, guys, still, still here. here. Now a, now a two-time like champion. Yes, and I would say safely kind of cements her status as when we look back on this sort of decade, this era of tennis, one of the best players of this era, um, up there with Sviantek and Osaka and Barty. Uh, if anyone remembers Ash Barty. Um, and I do... Yeah, I think it's it's her and those four. And Coco's yeah. going to join that. But uh, yeah, big, big shout out to Sabalenka. My, I think this is going to go down as her, the greatest yeah. moment of her career. Yeah, definitely. I think she's a player who, if, if you remember, um, suffered from incredible yips and could not serve, you know, and, and that is not an exaggeration. And, you know, even when she overcame that and moved on, I think she had to also then work on sort of her mentality because, you know, I watched that final between her and Coco Goff at the US Open and, you know, Coco played great. I mean, Coco is an incredible mover and was getting to every single ball, but Arena lost that match for herself in her mentality she just lost it she was so angry and you could see it on court and you could see how it was affecting her game and getting back to her semi-final match here with Coco Goff I think that was a little bit of a breakthrough for her too because yes it was an incredibly close uh, match but in that first set Sabalenka was leading 5-2 in the first set and then it went into a tie break and I think old Sabalenka if that had gone to a tie break would have probably lost that tie break just based on her emotions. But she really held it together um, in a way I haven't seen her done do in, in so long that, you know, I was like, wow, this is, she's making a breakthrough. Will it always be like that? I think her team was asked about that question and they're like, well, you know, she might not always <laughs> be able to hold everything in, but <laughs> it was nice to see that she can and she can focus. And I mean, not drop, I mean, and, you know, I think you said it, oh, she didn't drop a set um, on her way to the finals. The score lines were bananas. It was six love, six one, six love, six one, six two, six love. Six, I mean, it was she crushed her draw um, and and really, really dominated this tournament in a way that I haven't seen a player do recently. Um, 
except for Iga. Iga tends to do that too in at the French Open. And um, although she's only won the French dropping a set without dropping a yeah. set the once, and that was the right. first time she won it. Yeah, I mean, really great for Arena. Really happy for her. Um, let's see how this takes her through um, twenty twenty four. But I think you know, again, like the rest of the tour is on notice because it's not even like. She's been to one final. Her record last year of Grand Slams were just full of semifinal rounds or finals, you know? So she makes it. This is the sixth consecutive Grand Slam where she's made a semifinal yeah. at yeah. least. So she's she's really, in, you know, an A-plus player, deservedly of the number two position of the WTA. And and let's see, I love that sort of rivalry between her and Iga, like who's one, who's two. And I just want to see more of that um, coming into 2024. And when they play each other as well, it's always fireworks. Like even in the straight set stuff, there's always been stuff that's sort of heart in your mouth moments from both players. So... Uh, yeah, I think I'm really interested to see how their, their rivalry, uh, goes. Um, I think they could be projected to be potentially on equal points by Indian Wells. Ooh, that'll be fun. <laughs> Depending on how the next yeah. month goes. Yeah. And then, it, I, 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 although having said that, Coco's going to be in the mix for number one as well sure. by that point. Yep. Yep. Um, and, uh, yeah, Coco brings another event to the game of like, Ex, that excellent defensive game that she has uh and you were saying about that first set in the semi-final like Sabalenka wasn't just 5-2 up she was 5-6 down Coco was serving for that first set uh before it yep. went to the tie break yep so like it, it, it Sabalenka almost did crumble um but kind of rallied and kind of dominated that tie break uh so yeah it is a I think we do talk about how Sabalenka handles situations a lot, but I think more often than not, she handles them well, actually. I think that she handles them good more than bad. Again, I said it earlier in the pod, but I'm so excited for, for this season of tennis. So many exciting things are happening, and it just feels like a moment for tennis. Um, and excited to see where it goes. But let's talk about the men's final. And <laughs> it was a final between... We've already... Did, have we not already we, done that? We talked you through it as it was happening. <laughs> but just the bigger points, you know, I think going into this final, Sinner and Medvedev, I was 100% behind Sinner because he, again, is someone who, like Arena, you know... I, and I love seeing that in players or athletes in general who maybe have a problem, have a weakness, and they work hard to get over that and become better at it. And, you know, I think Sinner coming into the end of last year had a losing head-to-head against Medvedev. He still does, actually, <laughs> currently. Weird. He still yeah, does. he still He's does. 6'4 now. Um, it is 6'4, it is but before... Before the bin, before pre-puke Sinner was 6-0 yep. down yeah. in the head-to-head. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. <laughs> and then it was at Beijing that Sinner finally got the win against Medvedev to win that title. And, you know, it, it was it a fluke? We didn't know. But then they played again in Vienna and Sinner won again. So it was one of those moments where you saw that he finally understood how to play Medvedev and come up, you know, like sort of start chipping away at that head to head, almost like he's now done with Djokovic where he's now he's figured it out. He knows what he needs to do to win these matches. So coming into this final, I could not, you know, the the head to head had now been was six, three, all, all the three wins were post puke center and I just didn't see how he was going to lose it. At the same time, Medvedev coming into this final, I think he was very, very disappointed with his performance at the U.S. Open against Novak, where he lost that match. And you could just tell throughout this tournament with the way he was fighting and clawing at every single match that he he really wanted to, to win this. Like, he really wanted to come in to win this. And I didn't watch the first two sets. I'm going to, but... You know, hearing from Nick, it seems like 
he was playing super aggressive, but then he just couldn't hold the level. And now this is another devastating loss for him from two sets to love up again. The last time this happened was at the 2022 Australian Open again against Nadal. Maybe he, maybe Australia is not for you, Mehdi. Maybe, maybe, maybe try again at the US Open. I mean, this is getting Murray-esque because Andy Murray also famously, you know, couldn't win an Australian Open final against Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic. Um, he lost five finals, never won it in Australia. Um, I'm hoping the same thing doesn't have to be- happen to Medvedev. I would love him to get it, especially since he's he's in the mix on hard courts. Like he's been, like he's been in the final of like mo- the hard court stand for most of the last couple of years. Uh, the Australian, the US. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a bit of a shame for Medvedev, but obviously, Sidder's run. He kind of he did de- ultimately deserve it, and it was very. Uh, Sets three and four were super close. Sinner only broke Medvedev in the last games of those sets. And it's because Medvedev got tight. So I'm interested to see um, how he handles that. Because I think Medvedev was probably closer to winning that match than it might appear, even if he couldn't maintain... I'd say, I wouldn't say the level, I'd say the energy. Because he did fall back onto his normal kind of game plan. And it was... Enough to hold off Sinner for the most part, but obviously Sinner's figured out the standard Medvedev game plan. But we'll see how the rest of the year is. I'm hoping it's not Medvedev going off the boil for the rest of the year because I'd love to still have him in the mix with Sinner, with Djokovic, and yeah, with Alcaraz. I really loved um, sort of what's happening on the top of the ATP T um, rankings right now, with it being Novak, Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner. You can see in level at least they have almost sort of separated themselves from the rest and, you know, been a top tier. I love the way they all fight against each other and, you know, who's going to come up over the next person. So, so yeah, it's, it's been great. This will be the thing with Medvedev too. He's so pragmatic. So hopefully he kind of can see the good in his fighting spirit and getting to the finals in the end. Like we said, he was almost out like three times. Like three times this whole tournament. So hopefully he can kind of see past that and see past this loss and, you know, not have a dip in the rest of the season like happened in 2022. Um, but yeah, I'm get, let's wrap this up with our players of the fortnight and then talking about what else will be happening on tour really quickly because, you know, tennis never stops. This is only the beginning of the season. Can you imagine? This is only the beginning of the season. I'm going to need like a week off to catch up on sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good thing. So, yeah, I don't have the calendar in front of me right now, as you can imagine. Um, But I I don't know every tournament that's coming, but I know some of the big ones. So next Next couple of weeks, we've got a couple of WTA 500s happening. One is in Linz, which starts on Monday. Uh, the only top 20 player involved, I believe, is Yelena Ostapenko. Um, everyone else is kind of getting in with like wild cards. It's kind of a sort of a, um, a tournament full kind of some of the lower ranked players to get themselves some points. There's also a tournament going on in uh, Hua Hin in Thailand um, happening at 250. And then uh, the week after... Um, is a 500 event in Abu Dhabi with quite a few big name players involved as a warm up for the following couple of weeks, which will be the uh, Middle East double in Doha and Dubai, where it's two WTA 1000 events. So, you know, the tour, as I said, like tennis doesn't stop. This is only the beginning. Uh, insert swelling music here as uh, the <laughs> uh, as the tour heads towards the Middle East and we get other sort of big points events ready for the Sunshine Double in March, April. But you want my player of the fortnight, don't you? Yes. Or do you want to do ATP coming up? No, who's your player of the fortnight? So the obvious choice is Arena Sabalenka, given her run. However, I thought I'd go a bit different because you never picked the winner um, for your player of the fortnight. So um, I thought, you know, who symbolises sort of the nature of the Australian Open? Who's someone who capitalised on the chaos, uh, showed kind of tennis that was kind of benefiting everyone on these courts, but also kind of e- emphasised what the Australian Open is going to be remembered for this year, other than Sabalenka being amazing. And that's Diana Yostramska, who made the semi-finals 
Um, I think being a qualifier and then getting through the draw that she did, yeah, uh, full credit to her. She's someone who has been touted talent for a long time, and I think it's nice to see her get a get a significant result for her career. Um, so I think what we'll talk about was sort of crazy WTA draw. Diana Yastrzemska is the uh, player of the week, Fortnite for me. That's awesome. I'm going to default to what you usually do and just pick the winner. Obviously, <laughs> Yannick Sinner is my player of the Fortnite <laughs> because just oh, um, so predictable. I know. How many I times know. have you picked Sinner for player of the Fortnite since we started this podcast? Oh my goodness, don't count. Nobody should count. It's been a lot, <laughs> but. The way he came- We need a wiki team, guys. I know, we do. But um, the way he came into this tournament, um, another thing we probably didn't say, he did not drop a set until the match with Novak. He, he kind yep. of pulled a little bit of arena and until his semifinals against Novak had not dropped a set. And you could just see the t- determination inside of him, his belief in his game- um, and if he keeps playing like this, you know, it's one of those things that we always say about Novak is like, well, if he keeps, you know, who's going to beat him, but I don't know who's going to beat him. You know, I think he has a leading head to head right now against Alcaraz. It's, it's pretty close. It's just one match, but still he's playing so well. And I want to see if he can sort of become a dominant player in the way Alcaraz kind of did after 2022 last year, where they just kept winning tournaments and, and consider do that. And how does the rest of the tour respond to that? You know, that's always my joy in tennis is, you know, yes, there could be a dominant player, but I'm always looking to see how other players respond and if they can. And that's what makes it exciting for me. I, I, tend to get bored if it's like the same person every week in, week out <laughs> winning the tournaments. So I, I like more sort of intrigue and um, and conflict there. But You mean the same person winning uh, Player of the Fortnite episode after episode? Well, <laughs> <laughs> we I'm going to say Nick. that. <laughs> yeah, um, just something I want to put on the Senate is sort of like, Actually, his breakout is kind of a this this moment for him is actually almost a weird combination of how Federer broke out and how Djokovic broke out, because Federer broke out in two thousand three in a very similar style to Sinner in that you know he was this player that everyone was talking about but couldn't seem to get the job done later in the tournaments. Yeah, and then something clicked when he was like twenty one. Um, it just you know coming up to his twenty second birthday when he won Wimbledon for the first time. And then with Novak, you know, he got this incredible end of season in 2010, including winning the Davis Cup um, for Serbia. And obviously, Sida leading Italy to a Davis Cup win for the first time in a long, long time since the 70s. Uh, that's given him the momentum boost. So there's these interesting parallels here for Sinner. I'm not so sorry he's, he's going to be a goat, but he, he's, a, he's, our, he's a carrot. We'll make do with that. He is a carrot. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Um, okay, so what else is happening? <clears throat> There's so much happening on tour, guys. They're, they're, um, you know, I think as we go through this year on the podcast, when it comes to talking about what's coming up next, I think, you know, we'll focus a little bit at mostly the bigger tournaments and, you know, where the top players are over over the year because, there's just a tournament every week and (laughs) there's a 250 somewhere (laughs) happening at some point. Um, But following in Nick's and Nick said to just sort of like hit on the big ones, you know, the Dallas open is coming up um, soon where Francis Tiafo is is defending um, champion there. Um, Montpellier is next. Um, I think Holger Rune actually got a, a wild card into that because he hadn't initially entered. Um, and then... Yeah, so- he's the top seed by miles. <laughs> by a lot. And, you know, I think that tends to happen sometimes when maybe a player exits a slam early. They, you know, find the next tournament. I think that's what happened to um, Medvedev last year. Um, when he got out of Australia early. But um, 
Carlos Alcaraz is heading down to South America, um, but that's where we'll see him next play. And and all this is just building up to the Sunshine Double, which I think is on the men's side anyway, the next um, Masters coming up, um, which will be in Indian Wells and then Miami. Um, so yeah, that's what's coming up on tour. It's an interesting place on tour for following tennis, actually, because this is like the one segment of the tour where literally tennis is is fully global yeah like the men that like the men you've got tennis going on in the middle east because the men are going there as well they're just their tournaments are not masters level you've got the tournaments going on in south america and you also you've got some european indoor events and you've got people starting to walk on north american hard courts ready for the sunshine doubles so yeah this is where tennis is global so if you're listening to us from whatever part of the world you're in, you're very lucky because there's probably going to be literally tennis for 24 hours a day. And at the very least, there's going to be something happening in your time zone to follow. Exactly. It's a, it's a really good time to follow tennis at your own pace, like they say. And we'll keep you up to date. You know, follow us on our socials. We're on threads um, where... I update on matches that interest me going on. I'm not going to watch all the tournaments, guys. I'm not. I'm going to pick one and stick with it. And if a fun match happens somewhere, maybe I'll update you on that too. And then we're also on Instagram. You can follow Nick and I as well on Twitter. I'll put our Twitter handles or X. I still call it Twitter. I'm sorry. Um, our X handles. I'll put that in the description. And we will see you on the podcast in two weeks. This has been great. It's been an awesome Australian Open. I am very excited for this season coming up. Oh my goodness. We didn't even talk about Rohan Bapana becoming like the oldest number one doubles player. We didn't talk about Mira Andreva. So much happened. So much happened during this Australian Open. Yeah. Bapana, yeah. One of the biggest news stories of the tournament. Yeah. Becoming the oldest first time winner of a, a major at 43. Oldest men's world number one. Uh, in doubles, you know, oldest male player to win any major. So, yeah, that was a that was a huge result. But yeah, we don't have time for that. Um, this would be a four but hour worth long mentioning podcast. for sure. <laughs> uh, I think we I think we're pretty good at being concise. Yes. Like you 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 don't want to go on some of the other podcasts you can find me on if you don't want uh, long ones. Yeah. yeah. Thanks again for joining me, Nick. I will see you again on a podcast in two weeks, and we'll see you all on a podcast somewhere in two weeks. Bye, guys.